The day is May 7th, 1863. It's a Thursday. You know, I always like Thursdays. You're like halfway through your week. You're almost to the weekend. It's an underrated day. But not a good day if you were a member of the Union Army of the Potomac, which had finished its retreat across the Rappahannock and Rapidan Rivers. For the past week, the Federal Army clashed with the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia in what would become known as the Battle of Chancellorsville. Chancellorsville isn't a city or even a small town, merely a small community with an inn at a crossroads about 10 miles west of Fredericksburg, Virginia. It was a place unknown to 99.9% of Americans just a week prior, but when the fighting was finished, it was recorded as the bloodiest battle in American history, replacing the last bloodiest battle in American history, the Battle of Stones River, which had only taken place four months prior. Chancellorsville wouldn't hold the title long. Of roughly 133,000 federal soldiers present for duty on April 30th, 1,606 were killed, 9,762 were wounded, and 5,919 were captured. The rebel army fielded less than half of the men than their Union counterparts, though they were put to greater effect during the battle, and they numbered around 60,000. Of that number, 1,665 were killed, 9,081 wounded, and 2,018 were captured. Total casualties for the Confederates were less than the Union's, but more were killed in action and a greater percentage of their army had been lost. The narrative of the Battle of Chancellorsville has varied in the century and a half since. Initial northern reports were excited at what seemed to be a promising campaign, but within a week of the battle, Union leaders and newspapers despaired of the results. Both contemporaries and later historians sometimes characterized the battle as General Robert E. Lee's greatest victory at the head of the Army of Northern Virginia, though Lee himself did not quite view it that way. Not only had the Army of the Potomac escaped intact, but the loss of men, particularly the death of whom some would argue was his best subordinate officer, General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, was devastating. Jackson was wounded by friendly fire in the middle of the battle and died from pneumonia on May 10th. So while Lee and Jackson's tactics of the battle are still studied today by military theorists and officers, the battle had not changed the overall strategic situation in the American Civil War. So in the aftermath of the Battle of Chancellorsville, what was the state of the two great armies facing each other across the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers? Before we get into the details, I want to briefly go over the basic structure of Civil War armies so we're all comfortable with the terminology. Both armies were constructed similarly, with only a few minor differences, which I'll go into in a little bit. Starting at the top, though, is the army. Civil War armies varied in size, but they were substantially larger than anything the United States had fielded ever before. George Washington had only led armies around 15,000 strong in the American Revolutionary War, whereas Civil War armies ranged from the low tens of thousands to well over 100,000 soldiers. This included combat troops like infantry, artillery, and cavalry, as well as all of the auxiliary and support positions like teamsters, doctors and nurses, and administrative staff officers. As we go down the chain, we'll mostly focus on infantry, since they're doing most of the fighting, but we'll touch on the artillery and cavalry branches as well. Leading each army would be a general. 
Union armies would be led by a major general, two stars. Before the Civil War, only two American officers had ever been awarded the rank of lieutenant general or three stars, George Washington and Winfield Scott, though Scott's was technically a brevet or honorary rank. The Confederate government allowed for lieutenant generals as well as the newly created full general or four-star general. Its armies would usually be led by four-star generals. The next step down is the Corps, spelled C-O-R-P-S. It's a French military term that derived from the Napoleonic era, and it was adopted by the United and Confederate States during the Civil War. Each army was made up of multiple corps, which didn't really exist before the war simply due to the small size of the antebellum army. But the enormity of Civil War armies necessitated the implementation of the corps system into army organization. A single corps in either the Army of the Potomac or Northern Virginia was about the same size as General Winfield Scott's entire army that captured Mexico City during the Mexican-American War. Union corps were usually led by a major general, but sometimes a brigadier or one-star general. Confederate corps were usually led by a lieutenant or major generals. Each corps was then divided up into approximately two or three divisions. Divisions would number in the low thousands and would be commanded either by a major general or a brigadier general, with each division would be about two to five brigades. Brigades consisted of troops from the same state. Usually the units with the most notoriety of the war were at the brigade level. Northern examples were the Iron Brigade, which developed a reputation for toughness and hard fighting, or the Irish Brigade, made up and led by mostly Irish immigrants. In the Southern Army, there were brigades like the Stonewall Brigade, which earned its nickname along with its commander at the Battle of First Bull Run, or the Texas Brigade, which was mostly made up of Texans, but also confusingly included troops from either Arkansas or Georgia. Leading a brigade would be a brigadier general or a colonel. Brigades consisted of regiments, which in a few instances were called battalions, depending on size. Regiments were almost always raised at the state level, and then mustered into the service of the National Volunteer Army. They would have names like the 44th New York or the 9th Virginia, and the number basically corresponds to how early they were recruited in the war, so the lower the number, the earlier they were uh, mustered into service. Early in the war, important politicians or wealthy businessmen would raise regiments from the local community and then lead them into battle, though this practice changed as the system of recruiting new troops became more standardized as the war went on. The regiment would be led by either a colonel or a lieutenant colonel, and in some rare cases, a major. Regiments were made up of companies. Companies were assigned letters, but also took on nicknames like the Empire Zouaves or the Maury County Greys. The soldiers of each company almost always came from the same county or city, so generally if a soldier volunteered or was drafted, he'd serve with other men and boys from his community. Either a major or a captain would command a company. But organization below the company level was largely irrelevant. Small unit tactics, though present, weren't popular during the Civil War. Units relied on large-scale cohesion or at least attempted to do so. As the historian Edwin Coddington put it, Quote, the center of the soldier's universe was the regiment, but the real concern of the commanding general was the number and strength of his brigades. Unquote. So that's the basic makeup of the army. Now I want to go over a few basics about strategy and tactics during the Civil War. Firstly, there are three basic levels of analyzing military actions. Strategic, 
operational, and tactical. Strategy is the highest level, and that has to do with general planning. Strategy is handled by the high command of the military and the civilian government. The president and his advisors, the secretary of war, and possibly a general-in-chief or general of the armies are the ones shaping strategy. The next level is operations. Operations are the implementation of strategy into action. The movement of troops to take this city or threaten the line of communications of the enemy army, whatever the strategic objective is. In the Civil War, the term operations didn't really exist, and the term they would use was campaign. Throughout this series, I'll use operation and campaign interchangeably. The last level is tactics. Tactics are basically operations in the face of the enemy, or operations under fire. During a battle, orders are issued from the top down to maneuver troops, attack an enemy, or defend a position. The American Civil War is sometimes described as the first modern war. It involved many notable firsts that would be inextricably linked with modern warfare in the industrial age, like the use of trains and railroads to move troops and supplies, the decline of wooden ships and the rise of ironclad naval vessels, the use of intricate trenches and fortifications, repeating rifles and rapid-firing weapons like the Gatling gun. But the Civil War was not quite a modern war. I would describe it as proto-modern. It was kind of like one of those early hominid species that could walk upright and use tools, but was decidedly not a modern human. There had certainly been many technological innovations in the 1840s and 1850s that began to change the way wars were fought. An old adage is that the new technology made the tactics used by Civil War officers outdated. And while there's a bit of truth in that, it's a bit of a cliché. Yes, Civil War tactics were largely unchanged from the days of Napoleon, but the weapons used by most Civil War soldiers weren't nearly as advanced as some have alleged. There were two big innovations prior to the war, the rifled musket and the mini-ball. The musket had been the primary infantry weapon for more than a century, but soldiers in previous decades mostly carried smoothbore muskets, meaning the inside of the barrel was smooth. Rifling refers to circular grooves that are designed inside the barrel that causes the projectile fired out of it to spin, making it go faster and farther. Rifled muskets before the 1850s were primarily used by light infantry or sharpshooters, but changes in industrial manufacturing made the mass production of rifled muskets possible in the 1850s and 1860s. The other key innovation occurred in 1846 when the French military officer and inventor Claude-Étienne Minier designed a new type of ammunition, which is usually referred to as the mini-ball. Despite the name, it was not ball-shaped. It was actually conical or bullet-shaped and it had grooves and a hollow base. When the musket was fired, the base of the mini-ball would expand, and as it rapidly shot forward, the grooves in the bullet would catch the rifling inside the barrel, making it come out faster and straighter than a round ball. This gave the rifled musket a maximum range of about 500 yards, 200 yards longer than smoothbore muskets. But as the historian Earl Hess has written about in several books, the rifled musket had drawbacks. Firstly, it was an effective weapon in the hands of a well-trained soldier, but the men who fought in this war were overwhelmingly not professional soldiers and often weren't adequately trained to fire their weapons. Particularly on the Confederate side, rarely was live ammunition used for shooting drills because it was seen as wasteful. Instead, it was during combat that soldiers got most of their experience, and it might take a couple of battles to get the hang of things. Secondly, the rifle musket had the tendency to overshoot. As the mini-bull would rise in elevation after being fired, a well-trained soldier could compensate for this, but in the heat of battle, it was hard to adjust. Thirdly, the rifled musket was a muzzle-loading black powder weapon. With their teeth, an infantryman would tear open a paper cartridge, which contained black powder, and a bullet. 
They would pour the black powder down the muzzle, drop a bullet on top, crumple the paper into a wad, and stuff it all down the barrel using a metal ramrod. Then he'd bring the hammer to half cock, place a brass percussion cap underneath, pull the hammer to full cock, and pull the trigger. The entire process would take about 20 seconds. The shot would produce a plume of smoke that, when multiplied by thousands of soldiers, would quickly develop into a thick fog that shrouded the battlefield. People in the modern day are often shocked, appalled even, that Civil War soldiers fought in close ranks, marching shoulder to shoulder into battle, but this was necessary to keep units from breaking apart in the heat and confusion of combat. Without radios, keeping soldiers packed together was the most effective way to, com uh, to communicate with them and coordinate their actions. Most soldiers killed in combat were shot from a distance of less than 100 yards. That was the killing zone. Particularly at close distance, the damage caused by the bullet was horrific. It would shatter bones, sever arteries, and if it didn't exit cleanly, the wound would likely develop into an infection. The best marksmen were often grouped into special sharpshooting units that would harass the enemy from a distance. During trench battles, snipers would constantly fire at troops on the front lines. This was one of the first wars where it became possible to be killed by an enemy so far away that you might not see them. Within musket range, the safest place on the battlefield was the middle range of 100 to 400 yards. Although it was possible to be shot there, it was unlikely. And though the tactics of the Civil War weren't all that innovative, they weren't all that outdated either. Officers of the Civil War basically had three sources from which they gained knowledge or experience in military matters. The first was the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. Located on high ground at a bend in the Hudson River, West Point was founded in 1802 and was intended to be an educational and training facility for the nation's elite sons. Modeled largely after French military academies, it would instruct well-connected young men in a variety of subjects like engineering, mathematics, and the French language. While it was certainly a military school, engineering was the primary focus. Cadets who graduated could enter professional military service, but many used their training to enter the private sector. Basic military instruction and tactics were taught, and depending on where you finished academically, you'd be assigned to the engineers, artillery, cavalry, or infantry. One of the more influential professors in the mid-19th century was Dennis Hart Mahan, who taught engineering and military science at West Point from 1824 to 1871. Mahan's biggest contribution to Civil War thought was his stressing of the importance of fortifications, which most of his students took to heart, no pun intended. He also founded the Napoleon Club, which gave an opportunity to high-ranking upperclassmen to study military theory more in depth. Students would learn about the campaigns of Frederick the Great and Napoleon, the most influential military leader of the 19th century. The second important influence were the writings of Antoine-Henri Baron Jomini. Jomini was a Swiss-born military officer who served in the Swiss, French, and Russian armies, but it was during his years in the French army that were the most important. From 1805 to 1808, he served on the staff of Marshal Ney, one of Napoleon's most significant commanders, eventually rising to the rank of Brigadier General and Ney's Chief of Staff. After his military service ended, Jomini became a prolific writer of military science and the most widely read chronicler of the campaigns of Napoleon. Students at West Point would have read at least some of his work, though the more studious American soldiers like Pierre Gustave de Tant Beauregard and Henry Wager Halleck would have read them all. Jomini isn't as widely regarded today, mostly due to the rise and prominence of his contemporary, the Prussian officer Karl von Clausewitz, who wrote On War. But in the mid-19th century, Clausewitz wasn't widely read outside of the German-speaking areas of the European continent. 
Only a handful of German-born officers that immigrated to the U.S., and military theorists like Halleck might have read Clausewitz. Before the Civil War, the future Confederate general Pierre Gustave de Tant Beauregard wrote a book largely based on Jomini's writings called Principles and Maxims of the Art of War. He boiled Jomini's military philosophy down to this. Quote, the whole science of war may be briefly defined as the art of placing in the right position at the right time a mass of troops greater than your enemy can there oppose you. Unquote. Beauregard's first three principles derive from Jomini as well. Principle number one, to place masses of your army in contact with fractions of your enemy. The first principle in the Civil War was referred to as defeat in detail. As the slave trader Confederate general and Ku Klux Klan leader Nathan Bedford Forrest said, the key to winning was to, quote, get there first with the most men, unquote. Principle number two, to operate as much as possible on the communications of your enemy without exposing your own. The second dealt with logistics and supply. Every military force in the history of mankind could only operate if it had the means to do so. Food, ammunition, clothes, etc. If you don't have the materiel, you can't fight. So armies needed to have some sort of base of supplies and a secure way to transport those supplies to the soldiers. This is referred to as a line of communications or supply line. The line could be a road, railroad, or body of water such as a river. Railroads were the most important and most often used. Union General William Tecumseh Sherman estimated that to supply his army during the Atlanta Campaign of 1864, it took 160 rail cars on a single track each day to supply 100,000 men and 35,000 animals, mostly horses and mules. He went on to say, quote, To have delivered that amount of food and forage by ordinary wagons would have required 36,800 wagons of six mules each, a total of 220,800 mules, allowing each wagon to have hauled two tons 20 miles each day, a simple impossibility in roads such as then existed in that region of the country, unquote. Unless it was able to subsist on the land, an army cut off from its supplies would have to leave its current position. One way to force your enemy to do this was through a maneuver called the turning movement. By moving around the enemy force and threatening to cut off their lines of communication, it might force them to leave a strong defensive position and make it vulnerable to attack. It was also a way to successfully complete objectives without directly assaulting heavily fortified enemy entrenchments, thus avoiding unnecessary casualties. Though it should be noted that by making a turning movement, your own line of communications could possibly be exposed, so it should be a well-calculated move. Principle number three, to operate always on interior lines or shorter ones in point of time. Interior lines is an important military concept and one that is largely mathematical. The gist is that it's always in the best interest of an army or multiple armies to operate by using the shortest distance to move troops and supplies. I think the best way to demonstrate this principle is to imagine an army organized in the shape of a horseshoe. Then imagine a slightly larger horseshoe running parallel to the smaller one. This represents the enemy army. The army represented by the smaller horseshoe has several advantages. They're spread out over a shorter distance, so the amount of troops that occupy each square mile would be higher than the army spread out over the larger distance. By utilizing interior lines, the smaller horseshoe has the advantage in both offense and defense. If they decide to attack, they can shift troops from one end of the horseshoe to the other easily. If forced to defend because they're attacked by the enemy army on one flank, they can similarly shift troops from an unthreatened sector to a part of the line in need of reinforcements. The larger horseshoe is using exterior lines. If they need to shift troops from one end of the horseshoe to the other, they have to travel over a longer distance around the horseshoe to get there, and depending on the terrain, might be under fire while doing this. 
Interior lines can apply to any level of war, from grand strategy all the way down to battlefield tactics. The third and last great influence on Civil War officers was the Mexican-American War, which lasted from 1846 to 1848 and was basically the only war that the field commanders of the Civil War would have been old enough to experience, and it, the combat was somewhat similar to Civil War combat. Most of the career soldiers who had graduated from West Point by 1846 would have fought in either Zachary Taylor's Army of Northern Mexico Winfield Scott's Mexico City campaign, or for some officers, both. Even a few prominent civilians and politicians caught up in patriotic fervor and longing for military glory led state volunteer regiments in the Mexican War. The biggest military lesson of the war was that bold, aggressive action and the turning movement was the way to win a war. Taylor, and particularly Scott, brilliantly employed textbook turning movements time after time, and they were able to defeat larger, though poorly led and supplied, Mexican armies. Now, officers on both sides weren't always of the best quality. A large number of officers were civilians who had no prior military education or experience. Many of them were so-called political generals. Politicians turned officers that were generally disliked by regular army officers and the soldiers that served under them. And that's not to say that some amateurs didn't excel, and even professional soldiers and career military officers weren't equipped to handle the duties that were required of them in the Civil War. Some officers dis uh, displayed great bravery, sometimes borderline recklessness in battle. Others were cowardly drunkards who avoided the front, and drunkenness was a big affliction during the Civil War. And even the best officers on both sides made grave mistakes that would needlessly cost the lives of thousands of young men. Frankly, some of these guys did not deserve the jobs they were put in. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's talk about the details of each army. First, the Confederates. The Army of Northern Virginia was probably at the apex of its confidence in the wake of Chancellorsville. Time and time again, General Lee had proven to be the most effective army commander on the southern side, and he believed his soldiers were capable of accomplishing anything that was physically possible. Robert Edward Lee had been in command of the Army of Northern Virginia for almost a year, and in that time he'd scored victories during the Peninsula Campaign, Second Battle of Bull Run, Fredericksburg, and most recently, Chancellorsville. At this time, he was 56 years old. Lee was born in Stratford Hall, Virginia in 1807, the son of the Revolutionary War hero Henry Lee III, better known as Light Horse Harry, who if you remember did briefly come up in our episode about the Whiskey Rebellion. The elder Lee had risen to the rank of Major General in the Federal Army and served both a term as Governor of Virginia and as a representative in Congress. But Light Horse Harry lost most of his family's wealth, and having been attacked by an anti-federalist mob in Baltimore, suffered from PTSD and died when Robert was only 11. I think it's fair to say that much of Lee's character stemmed from the tragedy of his father's demise and death. Clearly, he looked up to the man, but also undertook efforts to make sure he didn't meet a similar fate. R.E. Lee was eventually accepted into the U.S. Military Academy, where he excelled academically. When you read about the young Lee, you get the impression that he was one of those guys that was liked by adults but not by his peers. Lee was nicknamed by his West Point classmates the Marble Model. It was not a term of endearment. That's not to say that he had no friends. He was quite close to his fellow Virginian and another future Confederate Army commander, Joseph Eggleston Johnson. 
and to his close friends he was known as being warm and funny, and he was also charming to the ladies, and I feel comfortable in saying this, he was a handsome fella. The sports talk show host Colin Coward coined the term quarterback face, meaning that when kids are young they pick the tall, handsome kid to play QB, and that carries on throughout high school, college, and the pros. I think Lee had QB face. He was good looking and tall, a natural born leader, and he had brains. Lee eventually finished second in the class of 1829 with no demerits, finishing behind a guy named Charles Mason, who's kind of like the 19th century US military version of Sam Bowie. Who's Sam Bowie? The guy drafted ahead of Michael Jordan in 1983. Charles Mason will forever be just the guy who finished first ahead of R.E. Lee in school, but okay, that's enough of the sports analogies. As a high-ranking cadet, Lee was given a lieutenant's commission in the Army Corps of Engineers and would spend the better part of the next 17 years building forts and other improvements in various places like Hampton, Virginia, New York City, and St. Louis, Missouri. During this time, he married Mary Anna Randolph Custis, who was the daughter of George Washington Park Custis. George Washington Park Custis was the grandson of Martha Washington, and therefore the step-grandson of President George Washington. This was a marriage of Virginia royalty. Lees, Washingtons, Custises. The couple would have seven children, three of whom served as Confederate officers during the American Civil War. After Mary's father's death in 1857, the Lees inherited a significant amount of property, including the slave black people. Their home at Arlington, the Lee Custis Mansion, was captured by federal forces early in the Civil War and today is part of Arlington National Cemetery. Lee served on General Winfield Scott's staff, along with many other notable future Civil War Army commanders uh, like the previously mentioned Joseph E. Johnston, P.G.T. Beauregard, and George McClellan. Lee distinguished himself in many roles during the war, and he learned quite a bit from Scott. After Mexico, Lee continued with his Army career. He was appointed as the superintendent at West Point, but after a few years he left the Engineering Corps and became the second in command of the 2nd U.S. Cavalry Regiment in Texas, where he served under another future Confederate Army commander, Albert Sidney Johnston. Outpost duty meant Indian fighting, and most of his time in Texas was spent fighting the, the Apache and the Comanche. He left active duty in 1857 to take care of his late father-in-law's estate, but while in Virginia in 1859, he was called to lead the effort to put down the insurrection at Harper's Ferry, led by our old friend John Brown. In 1860, Lee returned to Texas, where he remained during the secession winter. After Texas seceded from the Union and all federal forces in Texas were surrendered to the Confederacy, Lee went back to Washington, D.C. and was promoted to colonel. The traditional portrait of Lee, which began just after his death with early promoters of the Lost Cause narrative of the war, and continued in the 20th century with Lee's biographer, Douglas Southall Freeman, was that of the gentleman soldier, who was opposed to secession and morally opposed to slavery, but when his state called, he made the decision that he was born to make and sided with Virginia. Duty is something that's very heavily associated with Lee. And while there's a kernel of truth to the statement, this is mostly a myth. Lee was opposed to secession, but when Virginia seceded, he quickly changed his tune, and as the historian Gary Gallagher put it, he became an ardent Confederate nationalist. Lee is often described as being a moderate in his politics. Having come from a patrician Tidewater Virginia planter family, his father was a Federalist, and Lee mostly followed in his footsteps. He was a Whig for most of his life, but he did vote for the Southern Democrat John C. Breckinridge in the presidential election of 1860. The Southern Whigs had largely opposed secession, but after John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, the election of Lincoln, and the secession winter, the majority of them sided with the Fire Eaters, the nickname given to the most zealous of secessionists. 
Perhaps Lee was morally opposed to slavery, but throughout his life he owned slaves, and in one story that made its way into newspapers, was accused of violently whipping an enslaved woman who had run away and was captured. At best, he had a paternalistic attitude toward black people, believing that though they were enslaved, they were better off in America than in Africa. As he aged, Lee became more religious and came to believe that God would end slavery when he thought right. Though he manumitted the slaves that he inherited from his father-in-law, uh, that actually had been ma mandated in Custis's will, he was a fervent anti-abolitionist. And at the end of the day, he decided to fight for the slave power. Lee was of the same class as the southern aristocratic planters and strongly identified with them. Lee's home was in Virginia, and he must have believed that it was in his material interest to side with the Confederacy. Having gone through the experience of losing a family estate as a child, he must have been keenly aware of the possibility of losing his current home if the new Confederate States of America achieved independence, something that wasn't as far-fetched as later lost cause writers would have you believe. After Confederate forces fired on Fort Sumter on the advice of Lee's former commanding officer, General Winfield Scott, the newly elected President Abraham Lincoln sent Francis Blair to offer Lee command of federal forces that were being raised to march into the seceded states and put down the rebellion. Lee declined and subsequently resigned his commission so that he could offer his services to the state of Virginia. After Virginia was officially admitted into the Confederate States of America, Lee was given a commission as a four-star general. Only Samuel Cooper, the Army's adjutant general, and Albert Sidney Johnson, Lee's superior officer in the 2nd Cavalry, had seniority over Lee. But the early days of the war were not Lee's finest. His first experience commanding troops came during the Western Virginia Campaign that was fought from the summer to the late fall of 1861. The operation went poorly, and the western part of the state by 1862 was under the control of federal forces. The following year, the western counties were admitted into the Union as the new state, West Virginia. Virginia. Lee then commanded fortifications on the coast of South Carolina, but his time there was unnoteworthy. By the spring of 1862, Lee was relegated to an advisory role to President Davis. The Confederate military did not have a chief of staff, which turned out to be a major drawback, but Lee unofficially filled that role. He might have stayed in that position indefinitely, but on May 31st, 1862, General Joseph Johnston, Lee's old friend and West Point classmate, was wounded at the Battle of Seven Pines during this Peninsula Campaign. Only a few miles away from Richmond, Lee was placed in command, and within a few weeks his army had driven the Federals back down the Virginia Peninsula in a series of clashes called the Seven Days Battles. His reputation grew after he defeated John Pope's Army of Virginia at the Second Battle of Bull Run. In late August, early September, Lee launched the first raid across the Potomac, but was checked by federal forces at the Battle of Antietam. In his first three campaigns at the head of the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee had acted boldly and aggressively. One of his primary objectives was to take the war away from Richmond, so pressure would be relieved from the Confederate capital that was struggling with food shortages and high inflation. He also believed that occupation of federal territory and battlefield victories would demoralize the Army of the Potomac and Northern citizens. Lee's reputation as a strategist has suffered over the years, but he definitely understood one important thing. The war would last as long as the public allowed it to. Which side would capitulate first would depend on the armies in the field. The failure of the Maryland campaign was a blow to Lee's army. 
Though it managed to survive against waves of Union attacks, it had lost many killed, wounded, captured, or missing. Hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Confederate soldiers deserted from the army during the campaign, slipping away into the Appalachian Mountains while the army was on the move. But back in Virginia, the new Federal commander, General Ambrose Burnside, came into command and initially showed promise, but led the Army of the Potomac into disastrous frontal assaults against fortified Confederate positions at the Battle of Fredericksburg. Lee and his army again were victorious. Despite the battlefield's success, the Confederacy was no closer to winning the war. Arguably, it was farther away. The Pyrrhic victory of Chancellorsville left the army with much of the same results, and Lee was slowly bleeding his army dry. Lee's reputation as a commander has varied, but generally been in decline in the years after the war. Well into the 20th century, Lee was revered almost universally as a military genius. Much of the narrative about Lee came from the Lost Cause interpretation of the Civil War, which heralded him as a patriotic hero, and despite fighting for the losing side, he prolonged the war due to his prowess as a commander. It was the failure of Western generals and his own subordinates that led to the defeat of the Confederacy. One of the most prominent Lost Cause writers, Confederate General Jubal Early, probably put it best, quote, My sole purpose has been to vindicate the fame of the great commander of the Army of Northern Virginia and the truth of history, unquote. That's not to say that Lee has had no detractors, and even during the Civil War, plenty of people had criticism for him, particularly his aggressiveness and his tendency to take unnecessary risks that led to the destruction of the Army of Northern Virginia. My opinion of Lee as a military commander falls somewhere in the middle. I do think that Lee was an excellent military officer, and few men in America were actually capable of leading an army the size that he did. Lee was a decent strategist, and probably underrated by many historians. Lee was not the general-in-chief of all Confederate armies, but he did have grand strategic thoughts and made them known to President Davis. It was the operational art of war where I think Lee really excelled. He took his strategic vision and implemented it smoothly. He had a knack for understanding the thought process of the enemy and anticipating their moves, and when events occurred that thwarted his plans, he was able to improvise to meet new conditions. It's at the tactical level that where Lee is usually lauded by historians and Civil War enthusiasts, but they actually think he's a, he's a tad overrated in this regard. That's not to say that he wasn't a good tactician, but he didn't always make the best decisions, and he had the tendency to become overly aggressive and order disastrous frontal assaults like he did at the Battle of Malvern Hill. General James Longstreet had a good analysis of Lee's tactical abilities. Great on defense, not so great on offense. He was known to give discretionary orders to his lieutenants. Instead of giving very detailed and complex instructions, Lee gave orders that were open-ended, sometimes vague. He worked well with generals that could act independently and decisively, which the late General Jackson exemplified, as did General Longstreet, but it remained to be seen if Jackson's replacement could. All in all, Lee did not single-handedly lose the war, and his actions during the Peninsula Campaign and the Second Manassas Campaign definitely saved Richmond and perhaps the Confederacy from collapsing in 1862. But he wasn't infallible, and he made many costly mistakes. As the Gettysburg Campaign unfolds, we'll see both Lee's strengths and weaknesses. Lee had been meaning to reorganize the army for some time. Two corps had proven to be unwieldy. Corps commanders were unable to control all of their divisions effectively, so in the lull after the battle, he took the chance to make some changes. The Army of Northern Virginia had been weakened before the Battle of Chancellorsville, when half of the 1st Corps, along with its commander, General James Longstreet, were sent to the south side of Virginia to forage for food, protect Richmond from the southeast, and capture the Union garrison at Suffolk. The first two objectives were accomplished, but Suffolk remained in federal hands. 
Longstreet was ordered back when the clash at Chancellorsville began, but arrived too late to participate in the fighting. James Longstreet, seemingly the only guy in the war without a middle name, was the second highest ranking officer in the Army of Northern Virginia, behind only Lee. He was born in South Carolina in 1821 and spent most of his childhood in Georgia with his uncle. The Longstreets were slave-owning cotton planters, though not quite part of the elite of the slave-holding class. Longstreet's father hoped for him to have a military career, and he eventually attended West Point, where he was noted as being a particularly poor student. He finished 54 of 56 in the class of 1842, but he was popular with his classmates. After he graduated, he stayed in the Army and was stationed with his friend, Ulysses S. Grant, in St. Louis. Several Grant biographers have claimed that Longstreet served as Grant's best man, or at least a groomsman, at his wedding. Like the other soldiers of his age, he served in the Mexican War in both Zachary Taylor's army and Winfield Scott's army. At the Battle of Chapultepec, then-Brevet Major James Longstreet carried the regimental flag in an assault against the fort that guarded Mexico City. He was wounded in the thigh, and none other than a young Lieutenant George Pickett would grab the colors and take them over the wall. It was a heroic moment in an otherwise unjust war of imperialism. Longstreet left the army after the fall of Fort Sumter, offering his services to the state of Alabama. By the time of the Civil War, Longstreet was a rather large fellow. He stood at least six feet tall and weighed around 200 pounds and maintained the large, full beard. He was named a brigadier general when he arrived in Richmond and led a brigade into action at the First Battle of Bull Run. He was promoted to division command before the Peninsula Campaign, and after Lee took over the Army of Northern Virginia, he became one of Lee's wing commanders, which was the term they used before the Confederate government passed a law that allowed for the creation of Army Corps. He served well in this capacity at the Second Battle of Bull Run, where his wing smashed into the undefended flank of the Federal Army of Virginia, and at the Battle of Antietam. At Fredericksburg, his corps held the heights that the Federals hopelessly assaulted. It was there that Longstreet saw the true power of the tactical defensive, a lesson he took to heart. Though Jackson garnered most of the attention of the press and public, Longstreet was just as capable of a commander. Even before Jackson's death, Lee depended heavily on Longstreet's advice. He served as a more cautious, perhaps level-headed, foil to Jackson's aggressive nature. Despite the fact that Lee was a devout Christian and teetotaler like Jackson, he tended to spend more time in Longstreet's camp, which was known to be more fun and lively. Drinking and gambling were regular, but in the winter of 1863, three of Longstreet's four children died of scarlet fever. Grief-stricken, he was noticeably melancholy and withdrawn afterward. Though he respected Lee a great deal, and according to the British observer Arthur Fremantle, spent a great deal of time with Lee during the Gettysburg Campaign, he wished for independent command. In correspondence with his political patron, the hard-drinking, fire-eating secessionist and slavery advocate Senator Lewis Wigfall of Texas, Longstreet mentioned his hope to be transferred to the Western Theater. But for now, Longstreet would remain in command of the First Corps. During the reorganization of the Army, Lee decided to take divisions from both the First and Second Corps and create a new Third Corps. They would be about the same size, each with three divisions. Longstreet would retain command of the First Corps and keep three of his division commanders, Generals John Bell Hood, Lafayette McClaws, and George Pickett. Hood and Pickett had been with Longstreet at Suffolk, and neither saw major action at Fredericksburg in December, so they were both itching for a fight. For the two new openings at Corps Commander, there were six generals on a short list. The oldest and highest ranking was Richard Stoddart Ewell. Ewell was born in 1817 and came from a prominent Virginia family. He attended West Point, where he finished 13th in his class. He served in the Mexican War, briefly under then-Captain Robert E. Lee. And after the war, he stayed in the army until wounds and sickness forced him to take a leave of absence. 
When Virginia seceded, he resigned from the U.S. Army and joined the Confederate forces. Ewell gained prominence when he served under Stonewall Jackson during the Valley Campaign of 1862, and he led a division in Jackson's wing during the Peninsula Campaign and at the Battle of Groveton, where he was wounded in the leg. The wound was serious enough for the leg to be amputated, and Ewell would miss the battles of Antietam, Fredericksburg, and Chancellorsville, recovering from surgery. While out of commission, he married his first cousin, Lazinka Campbell-Brown. A lot of cousin marrying going on during this time. Aside from the whole cousin thing, there was a great disparity in their looks. Lazinka was a hottie, and Ewell was a naughty. His nickname was Old Baldhead. Not particularly creative, but an apt nickname. He had a large bald head and a hooked nose, which made some people liken his appearance to that of a bird. And Yule was also noted for having a strange or eccentric personality. But Yule had developed a reputation early in the war as a good division commander and had worked well under Jackson, no easy feat, so he was chosen as his successor. His division commanders were the irascible General Jubal Early, Robert Rhodes. As a Virginia Military Institute graduate, he was the only non-West Pointer commanding a division in the Army of Northern Virginia. And lastly, Edward Johnson, nicknamed Allegheny Johnson after he commanded a brigade in a battle on Allegheny Mountain. Early and Rhodes saw action at Chancellorsville and were both regarded as good commanders, but Johnson, like Ewell, had been recovering from a wound that he received more than a year ago. He was promoted to Major General after Chancellorsville, despite not participating in the fighting. Last was the newly created Third Corps. With Ewell off the list, five other generals were being considered for the final spot. In order of seniority, they were Generals Daniel Harvey Hill, Lafayette McClaws, A.P. Hill, Richard Anderson, and John Bell Hood. D.H. Hill and McClaws were the most senior in rank, and Longstreet had recommended both for Corps Command, but Lee didn't hold either in high regard. Hill was already basically out of the Army of Northern Virginia. At the moment, he was commanding a division in northeastern North Carolina, and was never to return. McClaws stayed in the army for the time being, but privately brooded about being passed over for Corps Command. Richard Fighting Dick Anderson was a capable general, but not considered driven enough for higher command. And John Bell Hood was the youngest at 32, making him too young to have fought in the Mexican War. Though talented and would eventually rise in rank, he was thought to be too inexperienced for the job. That left the commander of the Light Division, Major General Ambrose Powell Hill. Generally known in, in history as A.P. Hill, by his friends he was called Powell or Little Powell. Hill was from Culpeper, Virginia, and grew up in a slaveholding family. He attended West Point where he got along with most of his classmates, but notably did not with his future commander, Thomas Jackson. Hill, like many a young man, contracted gonorrhea, likely from a prostitute in New York, which caused him to have to repeat his third year at West Point, and he wasn't able to graduate until 1847. We don't talk about how basically everybody in the 19th century had VD, uh, but it's kind of true. Uh, practice safe sex, everyone. Anyway, Hill was on his way to join Winfield Scott's army, but before he arrived, Mexico City fell to the Americans, so he never saw any combat. After the Mexican War, he remained in the army and at one time was engaged to a woman named Ellen Marcy, but the two didn't marry as Ellen's parents pressured her to break the engagement. Marcy eventually married George B. McClellan, Hill's West Point roommate and future commander of the Army of the Potomac. See that, fellas? That's why we don't trust these hoes. Hill later married Kitty McClung, whom he called Dolly, in 1859. He resigned his army commission before the firing on Fort Sumter and offered his services to the state of Virginia shortly after it seceded. He was involved in nearly every major engagement the Army of Northern Virginia was involved in and rose rapidly from regiment to brigade and then division command after the Battle of Williamsburg. 
He was disliked by both Longstreet and Jackson. Longstreet had him arrested after the Peninsula Campaign, so Hill asked to be transferred from his corps, but only a few months later, Jackson had him arrested during the Antietam Campaign for not following orders. Hill sought to have his name cleared of any wrongdoing and asked for a court-martial, but Lee put the matter to rest and squashed the beef. Now, with Jackson dead, he was leading a newly created corps with three divisions. Hill's Old Light Division, an ironic nickname considering it was one of the largest in the army, was given to the 29-year-old William Dorsey Pender newly promoted to Major General. Pender was one of the more promising young officers in the Army. In a letter to Jefferson Davis, Lee said of him, quote, Pender is an excellent officer, attentive, industrious, and brave. He has been conspicuous in every battle, and, I believe, wounded in almost all of them, unquote. Civil War officers were usually expected to lead from the front or close to it, which was inspiring to their soldiers under their command, but hazardous to their health. Officers made prime targets for sharpshooters and stray bullets. Another division of Hill's Corps was assigned to another newly promoted Major General, Henry Heath. Heath was new to the Army of Northern Virginia. He had bounced around in the first two years of the war, serving in various capacities in Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee. But importantly, he served as a quartermaster under Lee in 1861, and the two developed a close friendship. Heath was one of the few people that Lee called by their first name. Heath's first experience in combat was leading a brigade in Hill's Light Division at Chancellorsville. When Jackson was wounded, Hill took command of the Corps, and Heath was temporarily assigned command of the division. He did an admirable job considering the circumstances, and he was rewarded with a promotion and given his own division. The last division was led by the previously mentioned Fighting Dick Anderson, great nickname, a good general when he was compelled to be one. Lee's army looked a lot different than it had a few weeks prior. Longstreet was the only real constant, but Jackson's replacements were unknown quantities in their new positions. In a letter to President Davis, Lee wrote the following about Ewell and Hill. Quote, the former is an honest and brave soldier, who has always done his duty well. The latter, I think upon the whole, is the best soldier of his grade with me. Unquote. Both were immensely qualified, but both also had serious drawbacks. Ewell's biggest negative was his long absence from command. With his new disability, how would he handle the rigors of an active campaign while commanding a force larger than he'd ever had before? Hill was known as a great combat commander. He tried to dress the part, donning a red shirt and black pants during battle. But Hill was not a great administrator, which was a skill needed the higher up the ranks an officer got. He didn't play well with others, having been arrested twice in the last year. And he also had health problems. I mentioned before that he contracted gonorrhea while at West Point, which he seemed to recover from, but years later suffered from an unknown infection. Hill's biographer, James Bud Robertson, alleged that he was suffering from prostatitis, or an inflamed prostate, which was exacerbated by the lingering effects of his venereal disease and caused him tremendous discomfort and pain, sometimes forcing him out of action for days at a time. The army itself was in pretty good shape, considering the bloodletting they just went through at Chancellorsville. The foot soldiers of the Army of Northern Virginia truly did have an esprit de corps that made it a formidable fighting force. The average volunteer soldier was young, somewhere in his early to mid-twenties. The common pop culture depiction of the southern soldier is that of the half-starved, raggedly dressed, shoeless young man, which is mostly true. In the spring of 1863, the Army of Northern Virginia wasn't exactly half-starved as Lee and his supply officers made sure that the Army had enough food to keep it in fighting shape, but rebel soldiers almost never received what was considered to be full rations. Confederate soldiers were a motley-looking bunch. Although officially they were to wear gray uniforms, shortages and dye due to the Union naval blockade made it so that the soldiers wore a variety of different colors, but gray, brown, and butternut were the most common. 
Pants were also those colors as well, but blue trousers that had been requisitioned from captured or dead Yankees weren't out of the ordinary. Hats were sometimes kepis or forage caps, but usually whatever the soldier could find or preferred. Wide-brimmed hats with a round crown were common and popular as it provided more relief from the sun and rain. Maintaining shoes was a problem for both armies, but particularly for the Confederates. Hard marching could easily wear out a pair, and the sight of barefoot rebel soldiers was not a rare sight. As far as weaponry goes, rebel soldiers were actually pretty well equipped. Almost all carried rifled muskets, though most were imported from Britain or captured from the Federals. They'd won the majority of the battles against Union forces, and arguably had never lost a major battle. Primarily, the soldiers came from Virginia, but also large numbers originated from North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. All of the Confederate states were represented in the army. The majority had been in service since the beginning of the war, having volunteered either just before or just after the firing on Fort Sumter. The Confederate government did pass a National Conscription Act in the spring of 1862, so some conscripted soldiers were filling out the ranks at this point, and all the soldiers were in it for the duration of the war. One advantage that the Confederates had was that new recruits typically were mixed in with existing units, as opposed to the federal practice of creating entirely new units. This allowed for new soldiers to become accustomed to soldiering much quicker as they were around battle-hardened veterans. One of the traditional narratives of the Civil War, one that was heavily influenced by Lost Cause writers, was that the common soldier was likely a poor farmer that was compelled to defend their homes from the Yankee invader, or was caught up in the patriotic fervor that swept the South in the spring of 1861. They did not fight to maintain the institution of slavery, nor did the majority own slaves. And while it's true that most Southern soldiers didn't technically own slaves, the real story is a bit more complicated. Enlisted soldiers, or privates, usually did not own slaves, but according to Joseph Glattar's brilliant study of Lee's army, at every rank, soldiers in the Army of Northern Virginia were more likely to own slaves than their civilian counterparts. At least one-third of privates owned enslaved black people, and the percentage grew the higher in rank they were. And though many soldiers didn't personally own slaves, their families did. Nearly half of all soldiers in Lee's army were personally connected to slavery in some way. This is especially true of soldiers who volunteered to fight early in the war, whereas soldiers that were conscripted in 1862 and 1863 were generally poorer and less likely to own chattel slaves. Despite the high morale in the army, desertion was always a problem, especially amongst the new volunteers and conscripts. All in all, the Army of Northern Virginia was the best of all of the Confederate armies, and at its peak, could have challenged any of the professional armies of Europe. Alright folks, that's where I'm going to leave y'all off today. Next week, we're going to cross the Rappahannock and talk about the Union Army of the Potomac, as well as talk about the planning stages of the Gettysburg Campaign. Thanks for listening. This has been Excuse Me History. I'm Joe Barton.